Well, are y'all ready? Anybody excited to get in the book of Jeremiah? So we're going to have a good evening tonight. And uh, if we seem intense as we begin, it's just because we spent eight hours yesterday going through this and seven hours today. So we're... uh, we're loaded to the gills. That's because we are about to embark on a monumental journey. It's going to take us into the depths, the mysteries, and the beauties of God's Word. In the next series of months, because it's definitely going to take that, we'll be in the book of Jeremiah. It's undoubtedly the most ambitious of all of our scriptural undertakings since our church started. It's often quoted among Christians that Psalms is the longest book in the Bible. And by some reckonings, that's true in English. But when you look at the Hebrew word count, Jeremiah is longer than Psalms. That fact is uh, greatly compounded by a couple of issues. Psalms was written over hundreds of years, had multiple authors. Psalms is composed of five books. So it's not really fair to think of it as a singular book in that regard. The Jews don't. Whereas Jeremiah was written by a singular author during a singular lifetime. And his work is definitely comprising one book. So it's the most significant, lengthy piece of literature in the Hebrew Bible. There are some areas we're going to break down tonight. Uh, This is a word-based church and... um, And we definitely want to get right into the Word. We want to go through that. But it's necessary to understand some things. The first is, we're going to talk about the nature of Hebrew prophetic works. Uh, That ought to be incredibly enlightening to people in the room. It's the kind of stuff you don't get unless you're in seminary. And when you're in seminary, the person teaching is often not saved and it means very little to you. The second thing that we're going to cover tonight is the political backdrop of Jeremiah's time period. It makes a difference which king is in office. It makes a difference whether it is Josiah or it's Zedekiah. The difference between those two men's lives is pretty incredible. We're going to look at the impact of Israel's geography on the language utilized in the book. This is not an academic rabbit trail. There is a reason that Jeremiah describes north and south. There is a reason that he always uses certain directions. And once you get that down, then the book becomes much easier to interpret. (coughs) Strangely, that being familiar with the people, their language, and their land helps you understand a prophet writing to his own people. The last thing that we'll look at tonight is the profound personal life of Jeremiah. Because he really stands out as an epic, epic man in the Bible. And, you know, usually when you ask people about Jeremiah, they'll simply say he's a weeping prophet. And that's about all they know. Uh, Jeremiah is a man of steel. I mean, his, his resolve as given by the Lord in the first chapter is uh, second to none anywhere in the scripture. 
And then lastly, after covering the Hebrew prophetic, the nature of the Hebrew prophetic works, after covering the political backdrop, after looking at the geography and its impact on the language and the life of Jeremiah, we, we're of course going to get into the contents of the first chapter. It, it, at least that's our hope. <laughs> but it wouldn't be right to be reading a book about standing in the very counsel of God without opening in serious prayer. Uh, we, we need that. We need his help. Uh, we need his direction. We need him to breathe on us as we encounter this. Because remember, we're studying this book believing that the Lord led us into it. Not just that it was a natural flow from Chronicles, but that our times specifically relate to the work of Jeremiah for a reason. And we didn't start with that idea. That's, that's an idea that the Lord brought to us, that was breathed upon us. So we're approaching this with a certain level of um, reverence that we might not with another book because we're not studying it just to study it. We actually believe that, that it will have real-life implication on a national and global scale in our lives over the next few days, weeks, months, years. That changes things. It takes it out of the hypothetical realm. So who is an anointed man? Chris Rosora, stand up and pray. <laughs> the sexy grandma on the front row to read every word of the first chapter. The words of Jeremiah, son of Hilkiah, one of the priests at Athanoth, in the territory of Benjamin. The word of the Lord came to him in the thirteenth year of the reign of Josiah, son of Ammon, king of Judah. And through the reign of Je Jehoiakim, son of Josiah, king of Judah down to the fifth month of the eleventh year of Zedekiah, son of Josiah, king of Judah, when the people of Jerusalem went into exile. The word of the Lord came to me, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. Ah, sovereign Lord, I said, I do not know how to speak. I am only a child. But the Lord said to me, Do not say, I am only a child. You must go to everyone I send you to and say whatever I command you. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you, and I will rescue you, declares the Lord. Then the Lord reached out his hand and touched my mouth and said to me, Now I have put my words in your mouth. See, today I appoint you over nations and kingdoms to uproot and tear down, to destroy and destroy 
and overthrow to build and to plant. The word of the Lord came to me. What do you, what do you see, Jeremiah? I see the branch of an almond tree, I replied. The Lord said to me, you have seen correctly, for I am watching to see that my word is fulfilled. The word of the Lord came to me again. What do you see? I see boiling pot tilting away from the earth, I answered. The Lord said to me, from the north, disaster will pour out on all who live in the land. I am about to summon all the peoples from the northern kingdom, declares the Lord. Their kings will come and set up their thrones in the entrance of the gates of Jerusalem. They will come against all her surrounding walls and against all the towns of Judah. I will pronounce my judgments on my people because of their wickedness in forsaking me, in burning incense to other gods, and in worshiping what their hands have made. Get yourself ready. Stand up and say to them whatever I command you. Do not be terrified by them, or I will terrify you before them. Today I have made you a fortified city, an iron pillar, and a bronze wall to stand against the whole land, against the kings of Judah, its officials, its priests, and the people of the land. They will fight against you, but will not overcome you, for I am with you and will rescue you, declares the Lord. This is going to be an amazing book. There is... So many things that we want to jump into. Jeremiah's seeming predestination. Uh, the impact of the word in his life. There, there are so many things. The Hebrew wordplay involved in what God said to him about an almond. Uh, I mean, this is a rich, rich book. It's true. It just occurs to us that if we don't do the other four topics first, that when you read commentaries and things, well, things that academics have written, you very well could fall into the same errors that they have. In the very first chapter, there are a few minefields that are not difficult when you put Israel in the center of the Bible, and they are difficult when you don't. Some of your study notes may say that this refers to a Scythian invasion. Well, it's rather absurd since the Scythians never invaded Judah at any point in history. Uh, it's solely based on a mathematical kind of approach to what is not a mathematical book. Tonight, as we go through this overview, I want to encourage you to take your notes. I want to encourage you to talk about them during the week. Mastering some of the things that we're going to introduce to you in the very beginning will help you interpret the entire book. And I'm going to give you a clue. It's really not that hard. One of the things that I really dislike about teachers is when they make a subject far more complicated than it is to elevate their own ego. An actual teacher of the Word will take a subject that seems vastly complicated and make it understandable to everybody. This book was written to turn the hearts of men. So it cannot require a Ph.D. to understand it. Amen. 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 Look, as we mentioned before, we're going to begin with the nature of Hebrew prophetic literature now that we've heard the chapter. So I know many of you have been studying in advance. You've read it a few times. You just heard it. We're going to begin with discussing the nature of Hebrew prophetic literature. 
This is a very different book than Chronicles. We're telling you that up front, and we're going to equip you to succeed in it. So to start with, Jeremiah was written in the Hebrew language in about 600, in the 600 range as they're compiled. When translated into English, most versions are a little over 42,000 words. Somebody That's a say 42,000. 42, That's a lot of words, whether it's in English or Hebrew. But they're not randomized. They're here for a very specific purpose, and we've come together tonight because we want to understand them. But Jeremiah wasn't written in English. The Hebrew copy has about 33,000 words. It's quite the difference between the two. Look, in large part, this is because of the vivid and dynamic function and pictorial nature of the Hebrew language and the prophetic writing style that Jeremiah takes. It simply takes 9,000 more words to describe in English what you can in 33,000 words in Hebrew. We have multiple nations and languages in this room, and many of you are familiar with the ability to convey a concept in Spanish much, with much more color than you can in English. So often we're going to run into passages where we're using two or three English words to describe one Hebrew word. It's almost as if God designed the Hebrew language to be how he conveyed his message through his prophets. We're going to work to catch up together. Look, the nuances, the little details, we will work through together to understand exactly what the prophet is conveying in concept. We want to consider a couple works with you if you put a slide on the screen for me. Let me give you a practical example while that slide is coming up. Have you ever heard somebody use the word rico in Spanish? Yeah. How would you define it, Nick? Um, excellent. Something positive, but depending on the context, it could mean a, a, an array of positive words. Did you hear how many English words he just used to define a single Spanish word? And still, we did not get an actual definition. We got a range. <laughs> now, Nick had four years of Spanish, and his father's a master at it. Okay. I'm saying that and picked him out of the blue, off the spot, because there's a lot of that in Hebrew, yeah. an awful lot of that. And so to understand the way in which words are being used, it's more than just a literal definition from a lexicon. You need to know the sense in which it's being used. You, you need to know the context in which it's being used. That's true of the word husband. It's true of the word father. It's true of the word Lord. It's true of the word virgin Th throughout uh, Jeremiah. And most heretical doctrines, most errant doctrines, even if they're not heretical, all hinge on totally misunderstanding the context that it is written in. So on the slide above, we have Isaiah, Jeremiah, Daniel, and Ezekiel. We want to talk to you just a little bit about their major emphasis. So we're not covering every detail that they spoke about, but it is the larger concept that they were conveying through multiple means. Isaiah speaks about the salvation of the Lord and his coming. Jeremiah speaks about the judgment of the Lord and its eminence. Daniel speaks about the kingdom of the Lord and its manifestation on the earth. And Ezekiel speaks of the glory of God. Now, with these concepts, we want to point out that none of these men were engineers. We have some engineers in the room that we deeply, deeply love. But these men were prophets, and they were not writing technical manuals. They were something more akin to spiritual artists that were conveying emotion, imagery, concepts, patterns, larger ideas and themes with a specific purpose 
And that purpose was warning and informing the soul of their hearers and their readers for future generations. All right, so I want to show you another slide. And this, we're going to look at the makeup of the prophets. Now, these are the works of the Tanakh. We have the Torah, the Law, the Nevi'im, the prophets, the Ketuvim in the writings. You can see what makes up the prophets on this slide. Now, most Christians don't consider books like Joshua, Judges, First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings prophetic. But the Jews do consider them prophetic. That is because these books are conveying to the Jewish people emotion, imagery, concepts, patterns, and they all have a specific purpose of warning the people and their souls of what comes whenever you do not obey God. I want to show you another slide and go a little bit deeper into what these three sections portray. We have the Torah, which covers the founding of Israel. Many of you think that the Torah is just a list of laws and sacrificial rites and rituals. It's not. The basis of the Torah is about the founding of the nation of Israel. That is what the entire Torah is about. And it is the foundation of God's word as well as the proper way to found a human heart. Beginning in the Torah is the foundation of everything that God's word is sitting upon. Now the Nevi'im covers roughly the time period from the promised land and into the captivity. They are aimed at warding off captivity, shaping the souls of men, and conveying the emotions of God. Uh, consider that task for a minute. You have to convey the emotions of God, but the prophets very much do, and we're going to show you that that this evening. Tell us about the Ketuvim. Now, the Ketuvim chronicle how to live faithfully regardless of your historical circumstances. Did you guys see that all throughout the books of Chronicles that we studied? Yeah. Reading the Chronicles, did you see that it was more of just a supplement? It was more than just a supplement. It was yes. helping us how to live faithfully within our context. Yeah. That is what the writings do. I want to show you another slide, and we're going to break this down even further. So the Torah, the Nevi'im, and the Ketuvim, they are three parts. The Torah, as you're familiar with, does what? It inclines our hearts. hearts. The Nevi'im warns our souls. souls. And the Ketuvim guides our strength. The Jews know from reading Deuteronomy 6 that man is made up of three, three parts. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, and your strength. These three parts of the Bible address specifically the three parts of man and how to walk in relationship with God. Now I want to show you, I want to read this scripture to the right. And we're going to start talking more about the prophets. Isaiah 38, 15 through 17 is Isaiah's own words. So this is not a word of the Lord to Isaiah. This is Isaiah speaking about his own feeling. He says, but what can I say? He has spoken to me, and he himself has done this. I will walk humbly all my years because of this anguish of my soul. Lord, by such things men live, and my spirit finds life in them too. 
You restored me to health and let me live. Surely it was for my benefit that I suffered such anguish. In your love, you kept me from the pit of destruction. You have put all my sins behind your back. Keep in mind that the book was constructed first to found your heart, then to warn your soul, and then to inform how you direct all of your strength. If you would like those scriptures, you can find that the Torah uh, inclines your heart in Deuteronomy 5.29. You can find all over the place, including this passage, that the prophets warn your soul, but also 1 Samuel 8.9. You read Psalm 18 and Psalm 33 and tell me that God is not supposed to be your strength and the director of all of your actions. But notice Isaiah in this passage He's doing something much more personal than that. Isaiah is in anguish of soul because he understands the emotion of God over the subject of sin. And that's what he's conveying. Now, how do you convey a a concept like that in technical language? How would you you write that manual for your plant? You don't. It's done by transferring the impact that God's word has had on you to other people. Yeah, that's how it's done. See, the job of the prophet is to warn the soul of the nation. And the Lord usually starts that process by warning the soul of the prophet so that he can then transfer that impact. Amen. Do you remember Isaiah's call, how he begins? Where, Where a coal has to be touched to his lips? And he says, I'm a... I'm a man of unclean speech among people of unclean speech. You, Ezekiel thought he was going to die. Uh, Isaiah thought he was going to die. You see the prophet having a personal interaction with the word of the Lord that then informs the way that he directs. Man, I really wish Christians were like this. Uh, then you wouldn't be talking about something. You'd be talking about your experience with it. Now, This is why prophetic literature is so full of metaphor, so full of analogy, why there are literary devices throughout it. They really are like artists trying to convey emotion rather than just technical detail. Notice verse 17. Justin, would you read verse 17 one more time so they don't forget it? Surely it was for my benefit that I suffered such anguish. In your love you kept me from the pit of destruction. You have put all my sins behind your back. Notice that in verse 17, Isaiah is speaking of God's saving love that has kept him from the pit of destruction. Even when I say those words, I start to get imagery. I start to think of of a pit of destruction that I'm about to fall in and somebody loved me and ran and grabbed hold of me so that I didn't. He uses imagery of his sin. Say his. His being placed behind God's back because it elicits feelings of freedom. When sin is properly dealt with, there is freedom from it and you are protected from them when you're in proper relationship to God. Now, to take this very, very technically, you would have the idea that God is running around with a trailer full of sins behind him. (laughs) But that's not at all what Isaiah is is. Is trying to convey, he's trying to get you to feel what he feels after interacting with the Lord. 
This is why many of the cessationists have a misunderstanding that anointed preaching, and I, I wish they understood that, but anointed preaching is really the same as prophecy. It's not, and yet the role of a prophet is very much like the role of a preacher. It's to transfer the impact that your interaction with the Lord is having onto the people to warn their soul, to inform their soul. To do that properly, it cannot simply be a list of rules. It, it cannot simply be a technical argument. So why do all of our biblical books about prophecy degenerate into highly technical arguments? And why is it always somebody with a 200 IQ that is explaining them? That's because we are missing the entire point and we are making something technical that was intended in every way to paint imagery, to be vivid, to be dynamic, to be living and active in your life, Amen. to show you the Lord of glory's feelings about a subject, what his word says about that subject. We're going to take a minute and review what the Bible has to say about prophets and prophecies in just a, a six or seven scripture string. And notice some things in familiar passages that we might not normally point out. Is yeah. that all right? Yeah. Yeah. All right, let's see a show of hands. Brother Linton, you get Numbers 11, 29. Nolan, you get Deuteronomy 18, 17 through 19. Hota Hota, 2 Kings 17, verse 13. Oh, Jeremiah 23, 16 through 22. And who wants Lamentations? Nick Rosales, get Lamentations 2, 14. Rob, 2 Chronicles 36, 15 through 16. We can pick up in numbers when you're ready, Linton. But Moses replied, Are you jealous for my sake? I wish that all the Lord's people were prophets, and that the Lord would put his spirit on them. Look, the Bible considers Moses a prophet, and in the coming passages you're going to see that. His desire was that all of God's people would understand the heart and the emotion of God, have his spirit on them. In Moses' own words, this is only achieved by the spirit of the Lord being upon the people. In other words, a prophet is moved in the spirit of God to understand, to feel, and convey what God does. Now, we're not talking about a parrot who just reiterates what it was told. To understand, to comprehend it, to feel it on an inward level and convey what God does. More than that, to move people towards God's thoughts and feelings based upon the interaction that they had with the Lord. Who is Deuteronomy 18? The Lord said to me, what they say is good. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. I will put my words in his mouth and he will tell them everything I command him. If anyone does not listen to my words, that the prophet speaks in my name, I myself will call him to account. Now notice that this task is not accomplished by spiritual feelings alone. The passage says that God will raise up a prophet like who? Moses. Moses. Moses interacted with the Lord on a level that was unprecedented. He was, God said that about Moses that he spoke to him face to face. As a man speaks with his friend. And then Moses took exactly what he saw from the Lord and he went and made it happen in a real world. 
Moses saw a pattern in heaven, and then he brought that pattern in all of its imagery. Have you been blessed by that imagery? Yes. yes. Pretty interesting stuff, isn't it? Yes. He brought that imagery to life by his actions. This task is not accomplished by spiritual feelings alone. It is always in conjunction with the actual word of God in the mouth of the prophet. How much better would charismatic Christianity be if we understood that? Look, this means that we are not just encountering Hebrew literary devices. We are rather encountering God's use. Say God's. God's. We're encountering God's use of imagery, metaphor, and analogy to move the souls of men. How fascinating is that? That this is God's use of imagery to move the souls of men as it is coming out of the prophet of, out of the mouths of the prophets. Look, the prophet speaks in the name, the character, authority, and reputation of God. It said that quite pashat in this passage, didn't it? Acceptance of the true prophet is acceptance of God. Rejection of the true prophet is rejection of God. I wish that we would learn that in this country, but we have such a hard time viewing men as actually having the words of God in their mouth, which is what defines a prophet. It defines a prophet that they have God's word in their mouth. And rejection of those men or rejection of those words is rejection of God. Who's got 2 Kings 17, 13? The Lord warned Israel and Judah through all his prophets and seers. Turn from your evil ways. Observe my commands and decrees in accordance with the entire law that I commanded your fathers to obey and that I delivered to you through my servants, the prophets. What's neat about this passage is it's not just talking about a singular prophet. It's saying that the Lord warned Israel and Judah through all of his prophets. The prophets of Israel were servants of God acting on his behalf to what? Warn. To warn the soul of the nation to return to ancient paths, old wine, and better way. The prophets' jobs were not to make the people feel better about themselves. The prophets' jobs were to warn them because they were going in the wrong direction. That is the job description of what a prophet is. So a a prophet is not just to foretell the future. A prophet is not just to predict things that will happen. A prophet's job description is to warn the soul of a nation. As we get ready to read Jeremiah 23, think of what you're already starting to pick up. In English, when we think of a prophet, we think of somebody who is predicting the future. That is really not even secondary or third. That's way, 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 way down the list in Hebrew thought. In Hebrew thought, they're conveying the heart, the emotions, the mind of God, which happens to sometimes include the future. That's, that's an extraordinary difference already. Then, when you read your basic commentary, they'll say, well, Jeremiah spoke in the literary devices of his day. Jeremiah chose to use this analogy. No, friend, that's not the case. God chose Jeremiah, who had this vocabulary, because he wanted, through Jeremiah's language and Jeremiah's vocabulary, to display this, it was God's choice to use this imagery. That's a big difference. Now it's not just a Jewish thing. It's a God thing. God wants to be presented as a husband. God wants to be presented as a father. God wants to present themes of fidelity. It's God who chose that. 
it's not just common to Jeremiah's day. Uh, let's read Jeremiah 23, verse 16 through about 22. I'm sorry, did somebody have that one? Okay. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Do not listen to what the prophets are prophesying to you. They fill you with false hopes. What do they fill you with? False hopes. They speak visions from their own minds. Where do the visions come from? Their own minds. Did you did you catch those two words to do what and what? Wow. Okay. Who has listened and heard his word? See, the storm of the Lord will burst out in wrath, a whirlwind swirling down on the heads of the wicked. Keep going. The anger of the Lord will not turn back until He fully accomplishes the purposes of His heart. In the days to come, you will understand it clearly. <laughs> Down to 22. I did, I did, I did not send those prophets, yet they have run their, with their messages. What they run with? Their, their, their messages. messages. I did not speak to them, yet they have prophesied. But if they had stood in my counsel, they would have proclaimed my words to my people and would have turned them from their evil ways and from their evil deeds. Now we could teach on this verse wow. all night. Yeah. Yeah. Um, by the way, notice the word counsel here spelled with two C's, not a C and an S. It's not that they're standing in the advice of the Lord. It's an actual counsel room in the heavenlies. They are privy to the king of the universe's decisions, his heart, his thoughts, his emotions. He said, I won't turn back until I fully accomplish all the desires of my heart. That's what this passage said. But notice that the true prophet always has to contend with the wayward souls of men as well as the competing false hopes given by false prophets. I'm sure they were good intention. I'm sure they did want good things for the people. The problem is the message originated out of their hope. It originated out of their minds. That's a good thing. That's not a problem anymore, huh? The false prophet has his own message, not God's message. You want to see that on full display? Just turn on Christian television. The, The false prophet conveys his own emotion about a subject, not God's emotion. Wow. It shows up every day in all of our little axioms. Like, well, God is always loving. He's always forgiving. Uh, Are you sure? Are you sure that he wants to forget? He wants to forgive Hitler right now. You're sure of that. Okay. These things break down upon closer analysis, but they're commonly said, and it is false prophecy. Could there be a more warning, a more sober warning for our time than these false prophets? All they were doing was well-wishing people. It's not like they're telling the people to go to the local porn store. They're just saying God wants good things for you, but they're not conveying His Word they're not conveying his heart or his emotion about that situation. Yeah. Yeah. Man, that ought to make us sober up quickly, yes. right away. Yeah. Jeremiah, however, both saw 
and heard the word of the Lord. Now, take that in for a minute because this is true in many ways of every person in the Bible called the prophet ranging from Abraham in Genesis 15 to John in Revelation. In Genesis 15, it makes the claim that the word of the Lord appeared to Abraham. There are big differences between Greek thought and Hebrew thought in all of these things. To hear something in Hebrew is to so fully comprehend it, not just uh, engage your auditory function. It's to so hear it that you obey it. So when he says they haven't heard the word of the Lord, it doesn't mean that they never heard the book of Deuteronomy read. It meant that they did not receive the impact and the import of what God was saying in a way they could convey it to the people. Wow, I see that every single day. Abraham had an auditory and a visual experience with God that so affected his life that it showed up in every footstep he took from that moment forward. Abraham is one of the first But John, the revelator, is one of the last. He doesn't just hear from God. He says, and then I saw, and then I saw, and then I saw. See, seeing and hearing in this passage should be understood in a literal sense, but also as being fully impacted by God's Word so that you can fully represent God to other people. Come on. Come on, is there anybody in the room that wants to be fully impacted by God's Word? There are many things that people might not like about our ministry. I mean, it's tough to deal with how handsome Justin is. It's it's hard to understand how somebody as, as amazing as Judah marked his body with the names of his children on his right arm. I mean, you could... You, you know what you cannot deny? People that have been so fully impacted by the Word that they've dedicated their entire life to transferring that impact. Come on. Now, I'm not accrediting our ministry. I'm saying that's the only way it was ever supposed to work. Yeah. And false prophets appear everywhere when you remove that requirement. Come on. It's very easy to mention that the Word says this and draw conclusions from it. That does not at all, that's just deductive reasoning. That does not at all mean that you have stood in the throne room of God and know exactly with with evidence, a title deed in your hand, what must now be done. That is the biblical qualification. That's what all of Hebrew prophetic literature is aiming at. There are men who experience that that are trying to transfer that impact to you. Look, as we go to Lamentations 2, which is also written by Jeremiah, I want to tell you in advance that as we work through these concepts in the coming weeks, you're going to have a new understanding of what it means to be in the mind of Christ. Oh, brother, I have the mind of Christ. Well, we'll see. Who has Lamentations 2, verse 14? The visions of your prophets were false and worthless. They did not expose your sins to ward off your captivity. The prophecies they gave you were false and misleading. Now it says the visions of your prophets were false and worthless because they did not expose sin or ward off captivity. They did not distance or warn the soul from the impending wrath of their wicked behavior. But prophets that do not take aim at warning the soul of people because they're interested in being comforting or being encouraging or being congenial are people who are false and misleading. 
Now listen, we are excited about the growth that God is bringing into our life. Who in here has ever received an encouraging word? I have. I've received some that were prophetic and some that were not. But in either case, it was encouraging at that point in time. But we have to have the right word at the right time. Because words that do not ward off captivity are false and misleading. It may make you rethink about whether or not God does want to in fact heal someone. Or whether or not he does want to bless them before it flies out of your mouth so flippantly. Jeremiah is often referred to as the weeping prophet, which we mentioned earlier. In other places, he's sometimes called the man of anguish. Listen, this is precisely because the sin of the people that he was sent to evoke emotion in God that caused God to grieve over their condition. Jeremiah was a man that was reflecting God's image with tears and anger. And it was appropriate, an appropriate response to their behavior because it's how God felt. Listen, we're studying this because we are going to learn to reflect God in any and all circumstance like Jeremiah. Look, I want you to take notice. In the coming weeks, we are going to read some seriously brutal passages. I've grown up in this house, been reading the Word since I was little. We're about to read some especially brutal passages. But at no point in time will there ever be a place where there is compassion is absent. In fact, the entire book is about the compassion of God who wants to warn the soul of people so that they might change. Let's look at 2 Chronicles 36 together. The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent words to them through his messengers again and again, because he had pity on his people. Why? Why? And on his dwelling place. But they mocked God's messengers, despised his words, and scoffed at his prophets, until the wrath of the Lord was aroused against his people, and there was no remedy. Now, one of the many ways that the Lord expresses compassion. And future hope for his people is the continual sending of prophets. That is how you know God is compassionate with a nation because there are currently prophets that are present. Leonard Ravenhill said it perfectly. You know that God is angry with a nation when there are no prophets. We should be warned in the coming days. Look and watch. Look, this is how God expresses, expresses compassion and future hope. Sending of the prophets to remind the people of God's heart, emotion, and will for the people. Now the scariest of all signs is when a nation stops seeing or hearing from the prophets. Remember that it is God's mercy to send the prophets, even though what the people might hear from the prophets doesn't sound like mercy. They stop hearing the prophets because they do not want to hear the truth of the judgment that they are bringing. Every prophet that you read of in the canon, can you list one, one book in the prophets that does not list both judgment and compassion? No. Can you find one of them? No. This is what marks the message of the prophets, that they are bringing warnings to the souls of men for the path that they are on, but also bringing a hope for if they repent. Look, the very fact that Jeremiah is the longest book in the Bible especially at the time that they're in. It takes place in the times, all the way from Josiah to Zedekiah, one of the worst in Israel's history. And the fact that it is the longest book in the Bible is an expression of God's patience 
and compassion for his people as he tries to turn their hearts toward him. Amen. Now, can you honestly believe that the God of the Old Testament is not a God of mercy? No, because he continually sends warnings like a parent to their son saying, if you keep doing this, I am going to chastise you. When you're thinking through this, uh, think of a guy. Wow, well, think of a guy like David. David, man after God's own heart. Of course, there was Gad, there was Nathan, there was Samuel in his life. They showed up at very specific times and helped change the direction and course that he was on. This is why David could later write, "Let a righteous man strike me." It's an oil on my head. It's a kindness. This is an expression of God's compassion. And to read it as an expression of his wrath only is a serious mistake. Also to pervert the Bible itself into only an expression of compassion is a serious mistake. You'll see they're always present together. Look, we're going to move on to other fields of interest. Um, We do, though, want to continue to consider that a prophet's job was to warn the soul of a nation, and they did it through more than mere words and literary devices. Uh, I want to show you a a slide about the frequency of their compelling actions. Think through this for just a second. Ezekiel laid on his left side for Samaria for 390 days. And he laid on his right side for 40 days for Judah just to convey the paralyzing effects of their sin. He also shaved his head and ate food cooked over nasty substances. Think about that next time you buy Ezekiel bread, right? (laughs) Now, did he get bed sores? I don't know, but sin causes sores. You know, did, did he get um, stiff? Did, did he experience pain? Was it different? Yes. And those experiences allowed him to transfer that impact to the people visually and audibly. Next time you believe you're called to be a prophet to a nation, let's examine that more fully. Because Hosea, Hosea literally married a prostitute. Now, if you read that as a technical manual, then clearly God is telling us all to to marry prostitutes. No, he was demonstrating in the life of Hosea what it was like to love a people freely and them treat you with such infidelity. But Hosea actually had to walk that out. Do you think it made an impact on his soul? So it shouldn't surprise you that Hosea is a forerunner to Jeremiah. That Hosea lays foundational work that Jeremiah draws on. We'll get into that more later. How about Isaiah? Have you ever, uh, have you ever thought you were in your house alone? I've always lived with people. And, and you decided at 2.30 in the morning in your skivvies <laughs> to try to sneak to the refrigerator to get milk and realize... There is movement in the house. Yes. Yeah. I, I've, had, I've had Christy walk through the kitchen as I slid around the counter under it and ran to my room. And, um, and Isaiah had to walk about naked 
for three years. What do you think that felt like to him? The same way that the people were evoking that emotion in God and God was trying to transfer that impact back to the people. This is what you're treating me like. Okay? When we read prophetic literature, we need to read it asking those kind of questions. How should I feel after reading this? What does this convey about the heart and the character of God? What is he trying to transfer to me? And all too often we get into counting weeks in weird ways. And usually to support some pet doctrine that you didn't derive from the word, somebody else handed it to you. Okay? Each of these events caused the prophet to experientially know what the Lord was expressing and convey the impact to the people. Jeremiah uses thematic presentations of God. He displays him as a husband and the people as a bride. Well, I'm saying Jeremiah did that, but who told Jeremiah to do that? God. He further presents God as a father and the people as his son or children. Somebody stood on this stage many years ago and very foolishly and said the Older Testament doesn't display God as a father. What an ignorant thing to say. And I'm proud to say that we've taught them since then and that kind of foolishness is cut right out of their hearts. Why would God describe himself as a father and you as a son? Why would he describe himself as a husband and you as a bride? If you take these things Technically, you cannot be both. But the point is, unless you live in San Francisco, (laughs) the point is fidelity in both cases. He's drawing on your strongest possible emotions so that you will know how he feels about the subject. In our Western setting, we have to avoid approaching these works with a Greek-minded technical proficiency. It misses the point entirely. And we have to start to get engaged with, dare I say, a more artistic feel. What is this supposed to evoke in me? How does that now affect the direction that I'm going? This was meant to touch my soul deeply and direct my behavior accordingly. When we do that, Jeremiah takes on a whole different uh, outlook. We have a couple of pictures that we would like to show you. Or painting, so you guys see that? Looks like Treester sitting in a field with uh, Jonathan to me. Except with less or more hair. I have one more that I want to show you. This reminds me a bit of the ironic blessing a son being lifted up and a father looking at it. Look. He does look like Jackie. I'm definitely going to make Rob read certain passages from this point forward. (laughs) Now, we're we're a bunch of families in this room, and whether you have your own family or not, you were either the son or the father. Does this not evoke something in you that reminds you of a memory? Definitely when I held Cody up like that. Yes. (laughs) Had two by fours under each elbow. It's familiar. It's comforting. Does anybody look at this image and think this is uh, dark and gloomy and somehow bad? No. Look, one way that you could examine this painting is to count the number of brush strokes. You see the hand there drawing on an arm? 
the order of their application. So exactly how it was painted on in the chronology of the artist creating the painting. You could look at it that way. You could make a list of the colors that were utilized to create the painting or analyze the physical properties of the canvas. But I think you all would know, sitting here looking at this picture, to do that, you would be missing the point and intent of the author. The artist was not trying to get you to examine exactly how they created it, to understand the chronology of the brush strokes or what the canvas was made of. They wanted to evoke an image of family. Listen, wouldn't it be better to grasp the beauty, the emotion, the sense of relationship being conveyed in an artistic, prophetic writing? It's our opinion that scholars frequently make this mistake in the silly example that I just listed when looking at the book of Jeremiah, counting the chronology of brushstrokes, looking at the composition of the canvas, while missing the larger point that the author had always intended. But more than that, in large part, the Christian population makes this mistake when examining prophecy as a whole, in general. We want to dissect it. We want to tear it apart and see what it is made of, and we miss the bigger picture. They presume that they're reading a technical manual written by an engineer, rather than taking in the concept, the emotion, the feeling, the visceral imagery that is being displayed that was designed to impact your soul, your mind, will, and emotions at the center of you. Judah, there's a, there's a saying that if you torture a passage long enough, it will confess to anything. Yeah. It, it's possible to have a death by analysis of something without ever having actually been impacted by it. I, I love that there are statistical analysis of books. I love that they compare grammar styles. I'm, I am completely into all of those things, except that is not the right way to interpret a book. The better question is, when I read this chapter, what picture is it painting? Look, for that reason... We are not going to be spending hours arguing and debating the chronology of Jeremiah. Look, scholars make much of chapters 46 through 51 and other areas that are not even worth listing about it occurring before the fall of Jerusalem, but then the fall of Jerusalem is mentioned in chapter 39, and they get very confused by the fact that it describes events, places, and topics that don't feel like they fit into a systemized block mentality. That is because they're examining it from a Greek mindset. These are not contradictions. Rather, they're areas of emphasis as the author is transferring God's impact on various subjects. The same is true of the book of Revelation, which should not be read as a technical, chronological account but rather as a prophetic work that is describing the interactions that the man had as God revealed it to him. None of this should be taken to mean that the Hebrew prophetic works are not highly accurate. <laughs> you are not hearing us say that they're inaccurate or to be taken lightly as some kind of ambiguous subject. No. They're highly accurate. Yes. They are, and it is our understanding that is often the issue in these kinds of subjects. We misinterpret it. And then we go, oh, well, you know, maybe it generally meant this kind of time frame, mostly because we had decided what we thought it meant before we read it, and now we're trying to fudge the line and make it work. Yeah. 
The so, Hebrew so to put that very, very bluntly, it's not inaccurate ever. But your understanding of it is often inaccurate. Stay staring at the painting and you might find that you weren't looking at a dog. You were actually looking at a father and son. Have you ever looked at an abstract painting and you're pretty sure you knew what it was until somebody pointed out a different outline? So much of the Hebrew prophetic work is that way. And it's why it's always clearer in the rearview mirror than it is looking forward. But it will prove 100% accurate. Yes. Jesus said quite plainly that every smallest brush stroke, every letter will not disappear from the law, the prophets, and the writings. Every, every bit of scripture will be fulfilled. Every singular point in the Bible will be fulfilled. fulfilled. The problem is often our interpretation as to how it will be fulfilled. Would you like to see some of these... Uh, Ways that interpretations get us a little bit mixed up and the accuracy of Scripture. Would you like to see that? Yeah. Yes. I'm hand out a few passages. I'm going to give you kind of an idea of what we're talking about. So, Rob, you take Ezekiel 12, 13 through 14. Paul Rosales, you take Jeremiah 34, 2 through 3. And uh, Hayes, you get 2 Kings 25, 4 through 7. Ezekiel 12, 13 through 14. I will spread my net for him, and he will be caught in my snare. I will bring him to Babylonia, the land of the Chaldeans, but he will not see it, and there he will die. So read 14 as well. I will scatter to the winds all those around him, his staff and all his troops, and I will pursue them with drawn swords. So this is spoken to King Zedekiah. And Ezekiel tells Zedekiah that he would be brought to Babylonia, but he would not see it. He would not see the captivity, but he would be brought to Babylonia. Now, what must you think that Zedekiah is is imagining there? I'm going to escape captivity. I'm going to be free from it all. His interpretation might say, I will not see captivity, therefore I am good to go. I'll be brought as a king. Yeah. Now read Jeremiah 34, verse 2 through 3. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Go, speak to Zedekiah, king of Judah, and tell him. This is what the Lord says. I am about to hand this city over to the king of Babylon, and he will burn it down. As for you, you will not escape from his hand, but are certain to be captured and handed over to him. You will meet the king of Babylon eye to eye and speak face to face. You will go to Babylon. Uh Uh-oh. Ezekiel told him he would not see Babylon. And yet Jeremiah 34, Jeremiah is telling Zedekiah that he would see the king of Babylon with his own eyes. So doesn't that seem like there's a problem there? Put it in a book of Bible difficulties and sell it. The problem is with our interpretation. How can these things coexist? Is he going to see or is he not to see? This is the sort of stuff that technically minded people like to argue about. I'm sure you can read all about them in commentaries that we like to pilfer through. Who's got 2 Kings 25, 4 through 7? Then the city wall was broken through and the whole army fled at night through the gate between the two walls near the king's garden, through the Babylonians who were surrounding the city. 
They fled toward the Arabah, but the Babylonian army pursued the king and overtook him in the plains of Jericho. All his soldiers were separated from him and scattered, and he was captured. He was taken to the king of Babylon at Riblah. Where, where was he taken to the king of Babylon? Riblah. Not in Babylonia. Where was he taken? Riblah. Just so you know, Riblah is in Israel. Keep going. He was taken to the king of Babylon at Riblah where he sentence was pronounced on him. They killed the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes. Then they put out his eyes and bound him with bronze shackles and took him to Babylon. Look, 2 Kings resolves the misconception and it shows the level of accuracy of both Ezekiel and Jeremiah. Zedekiah was taken to the king of Babylon at Riblah in Israel. His sons were killed and then he was blinded. Next, he was taken to Babylon, which, of course, he couldn't see because he had no eyeballs at that point. If you got lost in those passages, I put it on a slide for you. Painting a picture or writing technical manuals. That's what we need to decide that we want to do. Because Ezekiel told Zedekiah that you will not see Babylon, but you will die there. Jeremiah told Zedekiah that he will see the king of Babylon and will go there. In 2 Kings, Zedekiah sees the king of Babylon while outside the city of Babylon and is blinded. Zedekiah is then taken into Babylon. He just can't see it. What looks like a contradiction becomes very clear when you examine the word a little further. There are similar issues all over between the prophets. Jeremiah prophesies to Zedekiah that he's going to be buried in peace. But, Zedek but Ezekiel says he's going to die. And when you look at that, it becomes difficult until you realize that he was captured in Babylon... He was released and he was buried back in Israel in the tomb of his fathers. Every time you see something in the Word, we have to examine it in light of all of the Word and the bigger picture that is being painted. When we take a narrow view of a particular passage and take your stand, especially in the field of eschatology on it, it warps the whole painting. What you actually have to do is look at the broader narrative and then all of the pieces start to fall into place. God never contradicts himself. It's our understanding that contradicts itself. Yeah. We're going to want to move into the political background now. Do you all have a feel for what we're, we're aiming at in the nature of prophetic scripture? Yeah. Are, are, we're an hour and two minutes in. Are you all okay? Yeah. Okay. You're going to need to know this political background to some extent as we go through the book of Jeremiah. To start with, before we put up our next slide, which we're getting ready, there are three main powers that we're dealing with around the life of Jeremiah. The first is Egypt. The second is Assyria. And the third is Babylon. And they are struggling with one another for world dominance. So think Russia, America, and China, if that helps you. Okay? And depending on where you're at at a given week, one might seem more powerful than the other, and yet there is a trend that develops. Okay, I want to walk you through this next slide. It's got some pretty important details on it, and the print's kind of small, but it seemed best to have it on a singular slide. 
somewhere around the year 639 to about the year 609, King Josiah is reigning in Judah. Do you all remember Josiah? Josiah is uh, only eight when he takes the throne. He begins reforms. They find the book of the law. Well, that's really significant because Jeremiah begins prophesying in the 13th year of Josiah's reign. That lets you know that Jeremiah is impacted by the reforms of of Josiah. It, It gets even better than that. Assyria, which has been an ancient enemy, is losing power. Right around 612 is the fall of their capital city, Nineveh, where Jonah had preached and Nahum rails against. This weakens the Assyrians and strengthens Babylon. So among these three powers that are jockeying for position, Assyria is starting to decline and Babylon is starting to rise. In the reign of Josiah, right at the end, in the year 609, Josiah is killed at the Valley Megiddo, from where we get the word Armageddon. And he's killed by the king or Pharaoh of Egypt named Necho. So you see all three struggles happening in just the life of Josiah. Josiah is the first king that marks the beginning of Jeremiah's work. Zedekiah will be the last. And the opening line tonight of the book of Jeremiah outlines that for you. You move on from Josiah to Jehoahaz. It's not important that you know a great deal about Jehoahaz other than he was next and he's a relative of Josiah. He only reigns three months. I can't tell you how I hope for the kind of brevity of reign during... Well, we'll leave that subject alone. Uh, The FBI will come in here. Between 609 and 597, Jehoiakim begins to reign, also a relative of Josiah. There is a battle at a place called Carchemish where Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian warlord, defeats Pharaoh Necho, the king of Egypt. Do you see how Babylon is starting to squeeze out both Egypt and Assyria and it's becoming dominant in world history at this point? The Assyrians are completely conquered by Babylon after Egypt is removed from the equation. This is when the first siege of Jerusalem happens. In fact, Nebuchadnezzar is returning from defeating Syria and he stops in Israel and lays siege to Jerusalem. You think of the fall of Jerusalem as a singular event, and it's not. It happens in three waves. You think of the return of the Jews to their land as a singular event, and it's not. It happens in three ways. You tend to think of the captivity as being 70 years, and it is kind of. The people are there in three waves that are 70 years apiece and separated by 70 years apiece. So the first wave of the siege starts a clock and the first release ends that 70 years. The second starts a clock and the second release ends it 70 years later. This happens three times. And it's because there's judgment happening on the land and there's a desolation of Jerusalem that has to occur. They're separate things that we tend to lump together, but you'll hear more about that as we go. During this first siege... In the life of Jeremiah and during the reign of Jehoiakim, Daniel is he's taken into captivity. So where does the book of Daniel occur? Well, it occurs during Jeremiah's lifetime. We'll see, we'll be able to place that as we go through this book. They're contemporaries. Around the year 597, Babylon comes back for a second siege. 
During that second siege, Ezekiel is brought into Babylon. So now Jeremiah is prophesying, but Daniel is also living in Babylon, and Ezekiel is living in Babylon. Does that help you set context? It gets crazier than that. In 597, after a three-month reign, Jehoiachin falls by the wayside and he's replaced by Zedekiah, who we've done in Chronicles. His name oddly means righteousness at a time that they couldn't be more unrighteous. This is the final or the third siege of Jerusalem. It, it happens in 586 after Zedekiah's been in power about 10 years. This is when Jeremiah, who has been announcing this the entire time, he finally goes into Babylon. So Jeremiah has been prophesying, but Daniel goes into Babylon. He continues to prophesy, and Ezekiel goes into Babylon. And then finally, Jeremiah, who's the one that's been announcing it, he goes into Babylon. Keeping these kings in mind, Josiah, Jehoahaz, Jehoiakim, Jehoiachin, and Zedekiah will help you. And Jeremiah wanted you to know that because the very first verse, he tells you his ministry began in the reign of Josiah and he prophesied all the way up through Zedekiah. That helps you place it in history. That helps you place it in world politics. That's why sometimes he's talking about Assyria, sometimes Egypt, but mostly Babylon. They're the three world powers that are fighting with one another. Look, we're obviously teaching Jeremiah this evening. But understanding the rich prophetic works that have taken place during this period will help you see the Lord's compassion that he has on his people. And we want to give you just a brief flavor of what these other prophets are doing in their timelines to give you an idea of the heart of God and how he wants to turn them from their destructive path. We're going to put up another slide for you that will help place some of this timeline. So again, it's a bit small, but you'll see some of this is highlighted. All the way at the top in the 700s is Hosea. This is during the reign of Jeroboam and Hoshea in the north, and Uzziah, Jotham, and Ahaz in the southern kingdom. You guys remember from Chronicles, those kings had various types of lives, but through each of their reigns, Hosea was prophesying about the consequences of sin and what would come upon the people of God if they were unfaithful. In many areas, and in large part, Jeremiah draws upon those writings. And builds upon them as the time goes near. You'll see Isaiah, Micah, Nahum, all the way to Zephaniah, which picks up during the reign of Josiah as well. During the reign of Josiah, we have Zephaniah prophesying about the things that were to come and the destruction that was to come. You guys remember Huldah? Yes. Huldah did not have a book that was recorded, but was a prominent prophet in Jerusalem during the reign of Josiah as well, at about 6.30, somewhere around that time frame. Habakkuk, 6.20 to 6.10, during the reign of Josiah and Johaz, was prophesying about this. All of this is taking place during these time frames from multiple voices, multiple places. And you see Jeremiah here, from Josiah to Zedekiah, the captivity. There was a wealth of prophets that were speaking the same message and working to turn God's people towards his warnings. You'll notice beneath captivity, Daniel, Obadiah, Ezekiel, these men continued to give instruction and words from the Lord after the captivity so that their hearts and souls still might be warned and turned back to the Lord. 
remember that it is during the reign of Josiah that Jeremiah begins his ministry. This is highly significant since they found the book of law, the law during this time frame. You guys remember that? They found the book of the law. Like, where has it been? Jeremiah makes at least 66 direct quotes from the book of Deuteronomy alone. So he begins his ministry under Josiah. They find the book of the law. And Jeremiah's writings contain at least 66 direct quotes from Deuteronomy. This gets to be fun when considering that Jeremiah is quoted about 50 times in the Newer Testament. 50 times. I'm sure your minds are erasing as to where the majority of the usages are. We threw out things like, you know, I, I think Romans, and I remember a few times in the gospel when there was writing in the sand. And over 50% of those quotations are found in Revelation. 50% of them. Look, this is speaking of an unbroken continuity of Scripture. Jeremiah is quoting Deuteronomy. 66 times, and the Gospels, the writings, and the book of Revelation are quoting Jeremiah, who is quoting Deuteronomy. (laughs) You understand how prophecy works? It is building upon the original revelation every time, and it is growing in its pertinence and in its power. Now pick this up for a second while that slide's still on the screen, because it's going to go away and we've given you a lot of information about it. The people that laid the groundwork for what Jeremiah is saying are prophets, chief among them, Hosea. Zephaniah is actually there at the beginning of Jeremiah's ministry. They're they're contemporaries. Then, Huldah precedes Jeremiah just a little bit, but they're alive at the same time in Jerusalem. So is Habakkuk. When you look at those works, they're all seeing and experiencing much of the same thing. It's confirming each other. Then Daniel, Obadiah, and Ezekiel are there right at the end of Jeremiah's prophetic work. All of them are pointing to one message. Now bring that into the continuity of Scripture. These men are looking into the law to see what God's heart is, standing in his council room and making an impact on the people. The Newer Testament quotes these guys who are quoting Moses. I mean, have you ever noticed that when Jesus is dealing with uh, the devil in, in the desert, he, he's quoting the book of Deuteronomy? Yes. yes, so did every prophet that came before him. None of it was new. It never needed to be changed. It never needed to be amended. It was never abrogated in any way. It was only put on better footing by saying, hey, this is how that relates to what you were doing right now. It was to turn the hearts of the people. That makes this book beautiful. It also makes the prophetic works a unified theme. See, they're not... We we think of a prophet as prophesying about a date and time in the future. They were actually prophesying with a unified theme that's warning the soul of the people, turn from sin. God is a good father. He wants you to be a good son. He is a husband to you, and he wants your fidelity and if you keep doing these things there will be judgment and i will remove the unfaithful but always show compassion two out of a hundred one out of a thousand and i will rebuild my people with faithfulness that is that they all say the same thing which makes it kind of odd 
that we could read it like a technical manual and say A plus B equals C and A is now no longer valid, so X must also equal A. And we do that with replacement. We do it with supersessionism. We do it with a lot of things. It happens every time we read a verse written to them and apply it to us before thinking about them. We're going to correct that throughout the book of Jeremiah. Because the most beautiful passages in Jeremiah were written to Israel first. (coughs) Hope for Israel first, that hope is still there. It doesn't change. All of the passages about divorce are about a very specific generation. And they're always followed by, I will still keep my covenant with your ancestors. Mm -hmm. Not ancestors. Descendants. Descendants. Always. (coughs) Sir, can we leave this slide on the screen real quick and ask a question? Do you enjoy reading the prophets? Do you really enjoy trying to understand what the prophets are speaking about and aiming at? I can tell you from experience that if you would go and read, if you find a passage that that you just don't understand in the book of Jeremiah, and you would go and read Habakkuk, or go and read Zephaniah, or go and read Hosea, Daniel, Obadiah, Ezekiel, before you consult any other commentary, you'll be enriched in your study to understand the prophets. Even Huldah, who has no book, her writings are contained within Chronicles, and she prophesies a captivity. Also, the last slide, understanding the kings that were in power, reading through Chronicles and Kings and what was happening, will enrich your study of Jeremiah. You would be much blessed if you would read those books before consulting commentaries. Again, we... Uh, I'm interrupting, but I want to emphasize one more point. Let's think back to that painting. If you don't understand a yellow ray of light that is in the right-hand corner of the painting, consulting a commentary, analyzing it, attacking that one little area of the painting over and over and over again and trying to place when the brush stroke was made, exactly what the composition of it is, is a fruitless endeavor. You will never understand the painting without consulting the other 99% of the image that God is painting collectively. It's almost as if he uses a body of Christ to present his image to the world through multiple mouths and multiple voices. One of the things that that we just come from a society, we value dissection. Uh, We need to start to value connections in the word. Every time I've seen somebody dissect a verse incorrectly, it's because they don't understand its connections to other verses. If we would value connection more than dissection, it would start to get right. I'm not saying that we don't break apart verses and study even the the spacing between the letters. I love it. I mean, I, I, I do it every day. But the further we go in this, the more you start to see it's one big narrative It's not two verses that you happen to think speak to you uh, to the detriment of all of the rest of the Bible. This is why in our first groups of teachings in Discipleship Helps, we tell you that the Bible was written, it's 66 books written by over 40 authors, and yet it is still one book. The more you understand this principle, you will understand that this is not just a painting that is painted by one man alone. It is a painting that is painted together in collaboration by multiple men of multiple professions throughout a multiple span of generations. Look, we're going to get into the geography of Israel. 
And that's going to assist you in understanding judgment in the book of Jeremiah. I want to tell you that as you grow in your studies of the Bible, there is one thing that you will want to grow in the most, and that is your knowledge of the geography of Israel. Most of us know way more about the geography of our own county, state. We can tell you what restaurant is on this side of town, and we know so little about the geography of the, of the Bible that we're reading, the book that we have in our hands. So I want to refresh you a little bit about the geography of Israel. We have a slide for you, and you will see that Israel is centered in the middle of three major continents. You have Europe to the northwest, you have Asia to the northeast, and then you have Africa in the southwest. Now what you see in these lines are representing ancient paths of, paths of travel that were very, very, very common and used heavily. I want to show you the next slide, and you'll see why they chose to go those routes. This area is known as the Fertile Crescent. You can see from Israel going all the way north and extending to the east, then going south around Babylon, which is present-day Iraq, there is an area called the Fertile Crescent. This area was rich in agriculture. It was uh, provided plenty of food. There were rivers and waters. And this kind of limited travel in the ancient world along that area. Now, if you look that Fertile Crescent, you see the apex of it. You see down to the bottom, what does that look like to you? Desert. Yeah. That is a huge, vast desert that is almost uncrossable. On this next slide, you can see major powers at play. So you can see to the north. East, there is Iraq, which is ancient Babylon. A <laughs> little bit more northwest to that is uh, Turkey and Syria, which, represent, which is the ancient region of Assyria. And then in the southwest, you have Egypt. Now, to travel between those major, major kingdoms, you had to avoid that desert. Otherwise, you would die. Then you would travel north if you were in Babylon. You would travel north and then you would begin to descend south into Israel where the land was rich, where there was good routes to travel on. This forced all major traffic through Israel. And this is why the Bible speaks of enemies coming from the north. If you look at Babylon, it doesn't look like it's directly north of Israel, does it? No, it's not. But any time that they traveled, they had to come to a route that was directly north from where Israel was. And it is the same way with the southern passages. The, the kingdom of Egypt had to travel into that route and travel up. That is why you see in the Bible uh, language that speaks of enemies coming from the north and enemies coming from the south. Now, these men did not understand enemies from the north being Russia because Russia was directly north. No, they had a good grasp on the geography of their land. And they knew that enemies had to come at that passage, which was coming from the north. So they would understand kings from the north as being Assyria, Babylon, and not things that our commentators get wrapped up in because they don't understand the geography of Israel. Let's go back one slide. Can you see Babylon on that map? It, it's at about the 3 o'clock position. Yes. That's almost due east of Jerusalem. It is north of Jerusalem, but it's almost due east. And yet every time Babylon is referenced as attacking Israel, it's from the north. Um, 
Egypt is way to the southwest, but when Egypt is referenced as attacking Israel, it's always south. There are, uh, the, the attacks are not west or east in the same way that you don't attack Florida by land from west or east. It would have to come from the north. When Assyria attacks, it's from the north. So north takes on this ominous feel. When you start to talk about judgment from the north, they start thinking about the political powers north of them and how they would come through a very specific passage and attack. The idea that it must be a Scythian or or something else because it says north and and somebody thinks that they were north of them at that time is is blatantly ludicrous. But, But those kind of things have floated around for many years. And they do when you read Ezekiel 38 and 39. They do when you read the book of Revelation and when you read Daniel. And it is just a fundamental misunderstanding of the picture that's being painted. It is not something that any Hebrew commentators ever thought. Mm -hmm. And they didn't think it because they lived in the land of Israel and they knew that. Uh, Do you have an idea that attacks have to come from the north and south? Okay, well, then let's move on to some other things because we're an hour and 25 minutes in and I I also want to get to the text of Jeremiah. I want to consider a few things about Jeremiah's person. And we're, we're going to fly through these because we're going to talk about Jeremiah the person an awful lot. And um, then we'll go to line-by-line exposition. Is that cool? Yeah. Well, even if it's not, it's what we're going to do. So <laughs> Christians everywhere regard Flavius Josephus in the highest possible terms. Is that true? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Josephus is quoted from every pulpit. Would you be surprised to know that Jews don't? <laughs> Don't particularly like him. Same reason you don't like Benedict Arnold if uh, you know revolutionary history. You should contrast this with Jeremiah. Because the thing is about Josephus is he starts off as a patriot. But he ends up as a Roman collaborator. After after, uh, Titus is attacking Jerusalem, Josephus has lost his garrison in the Galilee And he actually becomes a translator and a historian working for Rome, but translating for Titus himself during the siege of Jerusalem. So how would you think about that? Not not very highly. Contrast that with Jeremiah, who you're going to see boldly stand for God against the will of his people, but never as a collaborator with Babylon. He's a man trapped between two powers. His people don't like what he has to say, and he is not going to buddy up to the enemy that God just happens to be using to judge his nation. That's that's an incredible position. Jeremiah encouraged the people to submit to Babylon only as an act of agreement with God's judgment. But he stayed with his people, even when they were treating him badly. In other words, Josephus got raptured, but Jeremiah stayed with his people. Oh, was that too much? Okay, well, I mean, just to put it succinctly, there's a big difference from prophesying inside the walls or prophesying outside the walls while you're drinking Mai Tais with the enemy. But you guys have leaders in this body that have prophesied the right word to you and stood by you even while you endured the correction and difficulty of your own bad choices. We have reason to rejoice in this house because we have men like Jeremiah. So there's a big difference between the way that we tend to view people and the way that the Jews do. And it's because the Jews look to see what you actually do, not just what you said. Okay? 
It's like a difference between the Hebrew language and, and the Greek language. Jeremiah is undoubtedly given one of the most difficult tasks that is possible for a human being. Remain among your people while often being viewed as a traitor and stand for God at all cost without trying to curry favor with Babylon. Well, that was just Jeremiah, right? It'd be something like knowing that China was going to invade this country. This is total uh, hypothesis, uh, hypothetical. That China was going to invade this country and saying, yeah, it's God's justice for the babies that you murder. And, and Christians say, no, 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 no. No, China mur- murders baby too, and, and God would never do that. And you say, nevertheless, it's God's judgment. So the church wants to kill you, and your fellow patriots want to kill you, and all you're trying to do is agree with the heart and the mind of God. Famous Bible teachers throughout history have been crucified by the Christian community for simply suggesting that a hurricane or an earthquake or something could be God expressing displeasure with certain behavior. I mean, Wikipedia Chuck Smith sometime. He he is uh, a well-known Bible teacher for almost 70 years. But he makes the mistake, and I'm going to argue it's not a mistake, of saying that God is unpleased with this nation for homosexuality and for uh, killing babies, and that perhaps some of the devastation we're seeing is because of that, and he gets blacklisted everywhere yeah. by the Christian community. That's, that's a small snippet of what Jeremiah lived in every single day. Yeah. Throughout the book, you're going to see his own personal character grow along with the calling that is in his life grow. He's probably only 20 years old when this starts. All right, think through that. Where are you, Spites kids? Raise your hand if you belong to Leslie Spite. Okay. Think that. Right there. That's who's being asked to stand against two nations at one time and the believing community and represent God. Let that sink in for a minute. Especially as you think about what you require of your kids. Okay? Because God thinks a lot more of what he can do through a man than what we think we should require of one. Jeremiah's name literally is Yahweh hurls. Now, that's not hurls like vomits. It's not a colloquialism. It's the same kind of hurl as in uh, the horse and the rider have been hurled into the sea. Mm-hmm. They have the same root word. And he's born for a very specific function. You guys are about to be hurled into captivity. Wow. And I'm going with you. <laughs> okay. Uh, most scholars believe his ministry was 50 years long. Man. How many of you could prophesy? Did you catch in the first chapter? You go tell them whatever I tell you to say. Yeah. And he doesn't know what he's being told to say yet. Yeah. How many of you could do that for 50 years? Wow. Yeah. How many of us get discouraged when we feel reprimanded for a week? Man. 50 years and remain faithful to the task? He has a few moments where he needs to be politely corrected, and God does that. You never see him divert from the task. I, I would like to see in this body 50 minutes, 50 minutes of staying on task, 50 years. Jeremiah is, is, is epic in the scripture. It's appropriate that uh, my father comments on the 50 years of ministry when many of us are working just to string together a few years of applying our marriage counseling. 
A couple things that I would like to highlight is that Jeremiah 16.1 indicates that Jeremiah never married and never had children. Consider the things that we feel like we are owed. That God is persecuting you if you don't have it. Jeremiah completed his ministry, giving that up from the beginning to the end. And it wasn't because of unfaithfulness. It was because at 20 years old, he was more sold out for the Lord than most of us at any point. Jeremiah 15, 17 seems to indicate that Jeremiah never enjoyed the frivolities of youth, but rather was consumed with the hand of the Lord upon him. And in his being, it is all that he could think about or live for. Consider the things that we feel like we are owed. Childish playtime. As grown adults looking for your own comfort and commodities. Jeremiah forsook every bit of that for the call of God. In fact, went into captivity with whatever was still remaining on his back in chains. As we go through this book, we believe that you will discover that the devotion of Jeremiah in the face of extraordinary opposition is an example that should inspire each of us to take our stand in our time. There should be an amen for that. Who should be a better amen for that? Look, we've already told you far more than we presently know. <laughs> so it's time to get into the actual text and read it. Is that all right? Yeah. Well, this is, this is Brother Linton's job. The words of Jeremiah, the son of Hilkiah, one of the priests of Anathoth in the territory of Benjamin. Now, it says in our English Bibles, the words of Jeremiah. Now, this should not be understood, understood to be a book of Jeremiah's words. I think that's quite clear already. Rather, Jeremiah expressing in his words the word of the Lord that God had placed in his mouth. I want to read something to you that we found in Dake's annotated reference. It says that in the prophecies of Jeremiah, word, devar in Hebrew, in the singular and plural, is used 181 times in this book. Now compare that to the 45 times in Isaiah. That's extraordinary, isn't it? 79 times in Ezekiel and 76 times in the entire summation of the 12 minor prophets. It is used 866 times in the rest of the Bible. So that means out of all the Bible, the word word comes roughly one-eighth from Jeremiah alone. And it's nearly always of the word of God as received by people or declared to them in preaching and teaching. Now, Jeremiah expresses perhaps the most profound emphasis on the word of God than any prophet in the entire Bible. Most of his his prophecies express emphasis on the word of God more than any other prophet. And that is so fitting because what's happening in his time They find the book of the law. National revival is breaking out because the word of God has been found. And it is reviving Jeremiah. And that is what his prophecies are being derived from. Wouldn't you think that during a time of a good king and finding the book of the law and with so many prophets active that there would not be a captivity? What actually happens is the closer you get to the Lord, the more he refines you. When you're far from the Lord, you don't even realize when you're sinning and you don't care when you find out you do. But the closer you get to the Lord, the more and more and more you want to get this right. Mm 
what Justin is saying about the word here, uh, I hear prophecies all of the time that are nothing more than blogging into the air. It's your thoughts about something, and they're good thoughts, but they're not God's thoughts. And the reality is, if you're going to prophesy to your whole nation that your historic enemy is going to take over the nation and you should submit to them taking over, it better be well-founded in the Word. Yeah. Yeah? But if you're going to prophesy God loves you and He's the Stay Puft Marshmallow Man who is there to make you feel better about yourself, well, nobody is going to scrutinize that a great deal. So He is Word-centric to the hilt is the point. I would like so much for us to be Word-centric to the hilt. Yeah. yeah, the truth is, is you can think of Jeremiah's prophecies as just coming out of a vision he had with no. from the Lord. The truth is, he got them from reading the previous books of the Bible that were already given and said such things. Also, the LXX describes this word when it says the words of Jeremiah. The LXX in Greek says that this is the rhema that came to Jeremiah. Any of you guys remember the teaching Logos to Theos? You remember that Logos in Greek is the written word. Well, of course he derived his prophecies from the written word, but also it is stated in the very first verse of his book that his book contains the rhema of God to the people. The living and active word, the right word at the right time that is being made manifest through Jeremiah. Man, how much do we need that? Also in the first verse, we see that Jeremiah's father was named Hilkiah, which happens to be the same name as a man that found the book of the law in Josiah's reign. After carefully searching the genealogies, though, it became clear that they are definitely not the same man. So we're going to tell you that right at the beginning so you don't get lost in your own studies. They just have the same name. Yeah, the reason we want to do that uh, for you is because there are several commentators that go down that route. And at first it appears impressive until you examine the genealogies that are in the word. And it's not possible. Uh, The line of Eli ends. We have a split in the priesthood. It's not possible for it to be Jeremiah. This is a good example of a broad filter versus a narrow filter. In a narrow filter, you can say, well, there were priests at Anathoth. And we can draw a link between a priest with the same name and Anathoth. So this must be Jeremiah's daddy. And some sensational teachers do that. But the broader filter in the word will show you the line of Eli could not have produced a priest at this time. And they were at Anathoth. The the broader filter will show you that the genealogies are given by Ezra to us. And it is not the same man. It sounds good. And to a biblically illiterate generation, it will probably sell a book. But it's not true. And we want to focus on what is true. There are two Andrews in the city of Houston. They must be related. They're both men of God. Yes. Yes. Clearly this is a word from the Lord. (laughs) Verse 2. There's two YouTube videos that say Trump will get a second term. It must be God. Word of the Lord. Thank you, him. In the thirteenth year of the reign of Josiah, son of Ammon, king of Judah, and through the reign of Jehoiakim, son of Josiah, king of Judah, down to the fifth month of the eleventh year of Zedekiah, son of Josiah, king of Judah, when the people of Jerusalem went into exile. Daniel and Ezekiel were likely born during the reign of Josiah. 
earlier as we went over some of the chronology, begin to place this in your mind. We have Jeremiah starting his ministry under Josiah. Daniel goes into captivity under the first siege that takes place. But when was this man of God born? He was born under the reign of Josiah during relative peace where there was a revival going on. We have the same happening with Ezekiel. Look, we don't have time to enumerate all of the ways in which a single generation of faithfulness can help pave the path for future generations to speak the word of the Lord. But it's worth considering. Josiah's time was not lost. It was not irrelevant. And all too often we look at it and say, but captivity came anyway. Yeah, but prophets were raised up that would not have existed without him. Now, these men were considerably younger than Jeremiah. But it is noteworthy that Josiah's reforms still produced an environment. Somebody say cultivated. Cultivated. Cultivated an environment where Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel could rise in their prospective relationships with the Lord and stand and take on the calling that they had to become national prophets. Because those guys grow on trees, right? Real national prophets are a dime a dozen. Listen, no matter how dark our days are, we should not lose sight of the fact that what we're standing around in may be going to hell in a handbasket, but the men that are needed for the next generation may be the little ones that are sitting on your left and right in here right now. That us cultivating our atmosphere and environment and standing for the Lord, regardless of what it means in the days ahead, facing that judgment is an opportunity for hope in the future. You will see this time and time again. There is never a point in time in Israel's history where there is not hope for the future generation, even if one is under judgment. I, I wanted to take the time and we'll see how much we have just just to drive this point home because it's extremely pertinent to us. Josiah's reign wasn't going to ever ward off captivity. It had been prophesied since the days of Hezekiah, at least, that they were going into captivity. But what Josiah's reign did was raise an environment that could produce Ezekiel, Daniel, Jeremiah, Zephaniah, all of these guys, Habakkuk, and, and what that allowed is a future hope. Do you know what we're trying to do in here? It, it's, not, it's not build a great name for ourselves. It's produce men that will help the generation survive what is coming upon the world. Amen. It's to express the heart and the mind of God to a world that seems to no longer want to hear it because we believe. We believe that there's a remnant who will. Okay? It, Josiah is a great example. We got less than 20 years of total reign out of his life. And he seems to die in a way that, like, it, it's not what you would have expected. Yeah. But what you don't realize till you get into Jeremiah's work is what his reign produced that you couldn't see. What had taken root below that would bear fruit above in the coming years. Oh, wow. Can you imagine if you have no Ezekiel, if you have no Daniel, and you have no Jeremiah because you couldn't have any of them without the reign of Josiah. Parents, this is important for us. If you are thinking for just a moment that maybe many of your years are behind you and you just hope to do some good for the Lord, but you, you don't know if you can at this point. No, if you've got 20 years left, there might be an Ezekiel. There might be a Daniel. There, there might be a Jeremiah that you are going to influence. I mean, even Eli, as bad as his household sucked, 
he succeeded in the last years of his life in raising up Samuel. And he turned the heart of a nation. I got eight grandkids now. We're a long time past what I might do in my life. And all we're focused on is what they will do in their lives in creating an environment that supports that, cultivates it, and pushes it forward. This is a word for our time, I promise it. It cannot escape our notice that Josiah probably had no idea that these men accomplished what they did. He lived out his reign not knowing these men or what they would do, but his righteous rulership over the kingdom provided the way for these men to rise up. Look, we may never know what the righteous rulership of the kingdom around us is producing, but the truth is it doesn't matter whether we know or not. These men lived in that time. I think of the words of the song we sang last, last Sunday, yesterday. Yeah. 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 I will preach the gospel, die and be forgotten <coughs> if it brings glory to you. Amen. That's the attitude we have to have like Josiah. It doesn't matter what's going on or if it seems worth it. In my time, there are young lives watching what we do and they are affected by the righteous community that we are raising up. Jeremiah certainly wasn't flying around in a jet or driving a Mercedes <laughs> with a license plate that said I tithe or apostle. He's not, in this for, he's not in this for his glory. And in fact, there's no glory to be found in his life except that when we look at his life, we know he's in glory right now mm-hmm. and on a level that very few will ever experience. Let's pick up on uh, verse 4 and 5. The word of the Lord came to me saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. Man, i got to tell you, this is a well, well-known and well-quoted passage. And it's clearly spoken to and about Jeremiah specifically. Many have undertaken to force it to support Calvinistic hyper-predestination, but that is erroneous and unnecessary. This is a a main text of Calvinists that they love to run to. Look, the scripture makes it clear in many other areas that, we have a slide for you, that for every believer, God has a plan for your life. For every believer, God has a plan for your life individually and specifically. For every believer, God has a specific design for your function. Man, thank God, right? There's a design to my specific function. To every believer, we are set apart for God's use. When we come into Christ, we are set apart to himself to be used by him. Man, that's good news. I want to be used by him, don't you? Every believer, there is a day of appointment. There is an awakening to that work. There is an awakening and a realization that God gives you when you finally see it clearly that this is the purpose God has put you on the planet for. These four things that God spoke to Jeremiah is true for every believer. And we want to share a few scriptures with you on that topic. Who will read Ephesians 2, verse 10? Steve Thomas. Psalm 139, verse 14. JJ. John 17, 17 through 9, 17 through 18, rather, goes to Avambola. Uh, Timo, you're going to get Colossians 1, 9 through 14. Ephesians 2, 10. Who has it? For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. 
created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. That's not specifically to Jeremiah. That's to every believer. It's, it's unnecessary to make some weird predestination argument. The truth is, is that every believer has work prepared in advance for them to do. Yeah. Every, 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 in fact, the great joy of our life is figuring it out <laughs> and, and discovering it. No father hides Easter eggs hoping that his children don't find them. He, he, he's waiting for them to be found. The great joy of our life is discovering that there was a plan for your life from the beginning and starting to walk in that. Psalm 139, verse 14. Now, this is a scripture that is generally associated with being on a pillow or being on a little pretty pain thing that you put in your bathroom or that your Sunday school teacher told you to make you feel better when your hair was messy on a certain day. You're fearfully and wonderfully made for what? Not so that you're pretty. Not because you're delighted in in this special kind of way. You were fearfully and wonderfully made to perform a design and a function. Because he has works prepared in advance for you to do. He knew what he wanted to accomplish through Spencer McLean's life when he came onto this earth. He is fearfully and wonderfully made to do the job that God called him to do. And there is a design that is the makeup of a man for the call that is on his life. Hey. What does it mean fearfully? Is God biting his fingernails? See, that comes from a, a, a rather ignorant technical reading of it. It means carefully. You were designed precision. carefully, with precision, Amen. to accomplish a task, which is what makes it so funny for you to be so caught up in your inadequacies that you don't perform the task. You were designed carefully to do something. John 17, 17 through 18. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. Do you hear how that's past tense? Now here sanctified does not mean that you are already perfect in your holiness and righteousness. That's not what sanctification means. Sanctification means being set apart to God. You are sanctified and you are set apart to himself. Well, guess what? You are already sanctified by the word. When you were outside of Christ, you are a part of the world. You are running with the world, doing what the world does. But the moment that you came into Christ, you were set apart to him to do what his word says. Now think about that. Regardless of how you feel, you are not your own. You are set apart to a master. You belong to him. Doesn't matter what you think about yourself. The word says you already Belong to Him. You're His. Through one of the strangest twistings of the word I've ever seen, whole denominations have turned this into you were sanctified before time began. No, that's not what Jesus says. It's not what the Word says. You're sanctified by the Word when you begin to obey the Word. Amen. He had a plan for you before time began. In fact, He knows the number of hairs on my head, which is an ever-moving target. I don't know the number of hairs on my head. Do you? He carefully crafted you with a plan in mind. And when you engage the Word and it engages you, you begin to be set apart for the thing that He called you to do. Let's read Colossians 1, 9 through 14. For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we 
have not stopped praying for you and asking God to fill you with the knowledge of His will through all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Sounds like He wants you to hear it and see it. Yeah. It sounds like He wants it to fully grasp in your, in your being. Keep going. And we pray this in order that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and may please Him in every way. Now, wow. which one of you is ever actually going to be worthy? Never. But your life becomes worthy of the Lord when your life is about what the Lord designed you to do. Bearing fruit in every good work. Wow. Growing in the knowledge of God. Amen. Being strengthened with endurance and patience. Yes. Joyfully giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in the kingdom of life. Amen. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves. Amen. Now, redemption, forgiveness of sins. You must be awakened to the worthy life that bears fruit. The one that God planned for you. The one that He designed you for. The one that His Word sets you apart for. You must be awakened to that. Mm-hmm. We cannot just continue to go through life just reacting. We, there's a plan. A plan by definition means that you're not reacting. You're setting a course in accordance with what God has planned for you. Is there anybody in here who wants to realize that appointment? The book of Jeremiah is going to set an extraordinary example for you in that regard because his plan was not an easy one. His design was wonderful. And he was set apart from it, from his own people and the others. And he did it. See, I I want to accomplish that. Brothers, we applied these things to you. And... um, we applied them to you because the truths about Jeremiah. They were spoken to Jeremiah, but they apply to every believer. Not the specific thing said to Jeremiah, the concept. You find them everywhere in the Word. But Jeremiah is who they were said to specifically. Now, there's, there's a reason for that. He was known, formed, set apart, and appointed from the womb. Whether all of those things are true about you or not, I don't know, but I do know that God had a plan for you. I know that He has a design for you. I, I, know, I know that you have to be set apart by His Word for it to work. I know there's a day that you're awakened to it, but to Jeremiah, he said, these things occurred in you at the womb. And you hear it in his speech. Never married, never had children, never enjoyed the frivolities of youth. From his birth, like John the Baptist, there was a destiny. Yeah. Okay? Now, I don't know that you can apply that kind of specificity to everyone in the room. Maybe the reason that that kind of specificity is applied to Jeremiah is because of his importance in a task to a nation that had a destiny that was predestined. Nations are predestined. People have choices. We're going to explore that topic an awful lot more in the days to come because it is not understood in the body of Christ. I'm going to suggest to you that we do not have time to finish the rest of the chapter. I want to give you homework. Mm -hmm. Romans 8, 28 through 30 is something that Christians love to apply to themselves without reference to who Paul is speaking about. Figure out who Paul is speaking about. 
The second part of your homework is the answer to the first question that I asked you. <laughs> when you read Romans 11, 1 through 3, Paul tells you who is predestined and who he is speaking about. I'll give you a hint. It's not Presbyterians or Baptists. <laughs> Why on earth would that be important? You're going to find out that through all of Israel's chastisements, it does not take away a destiny that God set for them before time began. That that destiny is national and not individual. And that their national destiny does not apply to a Norwegian as an individual. That that is a misunderstanding of the painting of God. We'll help you realize that as we go through the text. But it also does not rob you of, can you put that slide back up for me, the last one? It does not rob you of the plan for your life. It does not rob you of design for your function. It does not rob you of being able to be set apart for God's use. Come on. It doesn't rob you from an awakening. The fact that Israel has a national destiny, that no matter what a particular generation does, there will always be a righteous remnant that grows into a nation and is saved, that does not d rob you of these four promises. They're still there. And you do not need to steal them from Jeremiah in any way. God never said to you that he formed you in the womb with this kind of destiny to do these things and that it was unavoidable. He did say it to Jeremiah. You actually have to discover your plan. You actually have to figure out what your design is. You have to be set apart by the word of God. Jeremiah actually had a wholly different experience. He was different from the moment that he was born. Okay? This is more along the lines of what Paul is speaking about in Romans 8 through 11. There is a destiny for nations that cannot be averted, no matter what individuals do. But every individual has a choice of whether or not they reach their destiny. Okay? That's a deep subject, and I just don't feel as if we could do it justice in the next three minutes. But you're going to find out that every picture painted, every single one, conveys that specific truth. He promised to marry them. So if he divorces a generation, it does not do away with his promise to marry them. He always qualifies it. There's a larger picture that is being painted. For us in here tonight, I, I really think Judah should walk us through these four things again. And you should be exhorted to find the plan for your life and awaken to its design. Men like Jeremiah did, and you're still benefiting from it. Yeah. What will come after us? Amen. So when we look at these four things, we're balancing the reality of the text that is about Jeremiah, and yet the principles apply to all believers. So in the days that we live in that are growing darker, in the days that we live in, when regardless of what our circumstances look like, we're still at war with the fleshly nature. We're going to begin to define our own success and self-worth based upon following the plan that God has for our life. The design and the function that he has for our life. How it looks around us does not matter regardless of how dark the days are like Josiah. That is what we define as success. So men, your design, your function at work has nothing to do with how fulfilled you feel while you're accomplishing it. Women... Your self-image of your own body has nothing to do with the design and the function that God made you for. 
performing God's function and design is success. We will walk like Jeremiah as men and women that are set apart for God's use, holy and no longer common. Nick Rosales may have been common at one point in his life, but when he shows up to work tomorrow, he is holy and no longer common. Amen. Day of appointment, awakening to the work. Saints, this is where we've come to. We've been preaching on building the bride. We've been preaching about cultivating the soil of our own hearts, retaining the word of God, persevering in it, so that we might awaken to the appointment that God has brought us to here and now in our days. It is time for Cody Stevens to stand in the plan, the design, the set apart for God's use and appointment that God made him for. We're not willing to see any one of our number slide into eternity never having tasted victory or defeat while fighting for God's plan on earth. We will discover it together and if you're missing a part of it, we will pray and work through it until you understand it. Because now we need every man. We need every woman. We cannot afford for 50% of our congregation to not be ministering. We need you all. It's these kind of days. Listen, I want to suggest a scripture in closing that we're not going to read. But Acts 17.11 is something that we should be meditating on in these days. It is not enough for us to rely upon tribal knowledge, but to actually intimately know these things ourselves till it gets down in our soul. So when we're given homework about Romans 8, Romans 11, and you're hearing these teachings, meditate on these words. Don't let the fact that you have it on recording become an excuse to not actually study it. Tomorrow night, what you should be doing is reviewing these four things as they affect your life. Going over Romans together and seeing if God might give you insight like the prophets of old. So... We're not going to read any further in Jeremiah. But we read the whole chapter when we started. You know that Jeremiah's response to this is an expression of his inadequacy. That ought to tell you something. If you think of every reason in the world that God can't use you, he never will, but it's not God's fault. We're going to pick up next week with the reluctant prophet. I would like you to get ahead of that game by destroying all reluctancy. I'd like you to get ahead of that game by being more God-conscious than you are self-conscious. You don't have the right to look at the guy that made a plan for you, made a design for you, a function for you, who set you apart by his word and say, I will not awaken to this call because I just feel like uh, I'm a man of unclean speech or I just feel like uh, I've never spoken eloquently or I just feel like I'm too young. Israel is like an older brother to us and every time a prophet is called, he responds the same way. And every time, God has a response for him. I'm going to suggest to you that the same things that God tells Moses, the same thing that he tells Isaiah, the same thing that he tells Jeremiah... He is speaking to you. Get over yourself and do exactly what I told you to do. Hey, let's stand to our feet.